We've been in a series on the commands of Jesus. And I ran across this one in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And uh, Jesus is telling us basically to beware of covetousness. And that's the, the title of the sermon this morning. Beware of covetousness. To covet means to desire something that belongs to someone else. Desire something that belongs to someone else. And that's an easy thing to do, but a very dangerous one. Let's see why. Luke 12, verse 13. It's usually known as the parable of the rich fool. And we'll find out. You know how much I love parables. One of the multitudes said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said to them, the the multitude that was listening, Take heed and beware of all covetousness. That's the command. Beware of all covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Beware of covetousness. You can end up like this rich fool. Let's bow together. Father, as we wrestle with our relationship with possessions... Remind us they they don't really belong to us, never have, never will. Everything belongs to you, and you have placed us here as your stewards, managers over your property, just to see what we'll do with it, how well we'll deal with it, and how much we trust you about it. Help us not be rich and foolish, but to be wise in all of our dealings with things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Covetousness is defined as desiring that which belongs to someone else. And the reason it's so dangerous and that Jesus commands us to beware of it It's because there'll always be something that someone else has and you'll not have. And unless you manage to acquire everything that everybody else has, you'll always be susceptible to covetousness. And Jesus tells you to beware of that kind of attitude because if you're never happy with what you already have, you'll never be happy with whatever you might get. Haven't you ever tried that before? Noticed how much you want something, you want something, you've got to have it, and as soon as you get it, it's not that great anymore, and you start on the next thing. Something else out there, something else just beyond reach, and you want it, and you, and you work for it, 
and you pursue it and you get it and you enjoy it for a short while and then it loses its, its appeal and you move on to the next. Jesus tells us a parable that illustrates the danger of covetousness. And listen, as I've said before, when Jesus gives us a command, it's not, it's not arbitrary. It's not um, just because he wants to be mean. It's because he knows us. He knows our fabric. He knows how we're put together. And when he tells us not to do something, it's because he knows it won't, that doing so won't make us happy. It might even do us harm. And when he commands us to do something, it's because he knows that in doing, it will bring us happiness and joy. So a command not to do something, to beware of something, is because he knows it's a dangerous path down which many trod. Here's the setting. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And the younger brother, we assume he's a younger brother, comes up and asks Jesus to settle a property dispute with his older brother. Jesus, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. Now, if you remember um, ancient Near Eastern rules, the eldest always gets a double portion of an inheritance. So if they're two boys, the older one gets a two-third share and the younger one gets a one-third share. He wants his older brother to go ahead and divide up the inheritance, much like the prodigal son did. Jesus replies sternly, who made me a judge over you. And since he's been interrupted, he stops what he's doing and he tells them a parable about a fool. As he would probably do if I interrupted him and asked him a question. Hey, everybody, Wayne's got a question over here. And Jesus said, well, let me answer Wayne's question and that makes me think of a story about a fool. <laughs> this parable is Jesus' direct response to the younger brother's request about an inheritance over money. And Jesus tells a story about a very successful farmer. He plants his crops. He works hard on them. He harvests them. And so plentiful is the harvest that he has to tear down the barns in which he has always stored his crops in order to make room to build up bigger barns. And as the story goes, Jesus implies that with the passing of time, the farmer has worked his fields and tended his crops and invested so much of his life and time and energy into his labors that somewhere along the way, a gradual transition began to occur. And he began to love his possessions so much that they became the foundation of his life. He depended on them. He placed his joy and his hope in them. Jesus told us, he warned us of that in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember what he said? Where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. He knew that your heart follows your treasure. So place your treasure where you want your heart to go. Because wherever your treasure is, your heart's going to follow along behind it. As a result, the farmer neither had the time nor the inclination to worry about his relationship with God because he had invested so little of his treasure in God. His heart was not there either. It says when he's got everything the way he wants it, he's torn down his smaller barns, built bigger barns, and filled them up. He says, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 
Now, I, I'm suspect about that attitude there because I think next year the, the cycle is going to continue. And if the farmer has another bumper crop, he's not going to take his ease. He's going to tear down those new barns to make room for even newer, even bigger barns because once you start down that path, there's no end to it. It just doesn't stop. I like the cotton patch version of Clarence Jordan wrote of this passage. Instead of eat, drink, and be merry, take your ease, he says, rise and shine, dine fine, and recline. Yes, sirree, this farmer had it made in the shade. Or so we thought. Because one night Jesus says, everything changes. The rich farmer dies unexpectedly and he comes face to face with God whom he had ignored his entire life. And suddenly he becomes painfully aware of the spiritual poverty of his life. And God calls him a fool. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, call no man a fool. Because what does it mean? And yet God here calls him a fool. And every time I read that word, I think of Psalm 14.1 where it says, the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. And so this farmer is a fool because he acted as if there was no God. He lived his entire life as if there were no God. It's always good to learn something from a fool, kind of by a negative example. And so I want us to learn from his mistakes. And in your worship bulletin, I have an outline. And I'm very proud of my alliteration here. Baptist ministers always alliterate. Your life is not about possessions, it's not about your personal life, it's not about the present. Possessions, personal, present. Hopefully helping you remember this morning's message. We can learn first of all that life is not about possessions. It's not. This life that God has given us is more, more about life than the things that money can buy. Jesus says in verse 15, Take heed, beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's got to be more than life than just acquiring more. Jesus is saying that the really important things in life are the things that money cannot buy. And the very point of this story has often been twisted to say things that Jesus never meant. Jesus did not say it's wrong to have material possessions. Wealth, in fact, can be a very great benefit to the kingdom of God if you use it wisely for him and his kingdom. You are the manager of what belongs to God. Your possessions are not your possessions. They're God's possessions. He's entrusted them to you for a few years just to see what kind of stewardship you will exercise over them. The Bible never says that Money is the root of all evil. What is the root of all evil? The love of money. Loving money is the root of all evil, 1 Timothy 6.10. And that's the position Jesus took. He's not nearly as concerned about when men had money as he was about the times when money had men. He constantly warned about an obsession with what you own. Because he knew how easy it is for us to fall under the tyranny of things. So much so that instead of us possessing them, some transition occurs and they begin to possess us. 
In verse 20, listen to what the Greek actually says. The translation is, fool, this night your soul is required of you. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek literally says, fool, this night they require your soul of you. So what's the subject? What is the they that require your soul of you? The only thing that makes sense is that your possessions becomes a subject here. You're fool this night. Your possessions require your soul of you. Have you ever known anybody that was owned by their possessions? They become so wrapped up in things that they dominate their lives. We saw that happen, my goodness, in 2008 when the bottom of the stock market fell out. People were, went through periods of depressions. Many people took their lives because Rather than owning their possessions, their possessions had taken ownership over them. It is a small, sad existence. Kind of reminds me of the Grinch. Do you remember what was wrong with the Grinch in the beginning? His heart was three sizes too small. And that's what happens when your possessions own you. Your heart gets smaller and smaller. It is a sad, narrow, dark existence. Jesus is not opposed to money. He's just opposed that, to the idea that money can buy the most important things in life. I guess it's a good thing to have some money and be able to, to buy the things that money can buy, but it's also a good thing to check every once in a while and be sure you haven't lost the things that money cannot buy. Let me say that again. It's okay to have the things that money can buy as long as you haven't lost the things that money cannot buy. Whether you have a little bit of money or a lot of money, it doesn't matter. What does matter, what is vital, what is of utmost importance is that you still have the things that money cannot buy, such as what? How about salvation? Salvation. What is more important than that? The release that comes from knowing you've been forgiven. The power that comes from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The certainty that we are in a relationship with the creator of the universe. How valuable is that? And yet what good is money? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Salvation can't be bought by silver or gold. It's bought by the precious blood of Jesus, the Christ. Salvation is something that money cannot buy. But what about happiness? Everybody wants happiness, don't they? If I were to ask Ten people, what they wanted more than anything else in life, nine out of ten would say, I want to be happy. Well, how do you get happiness? Listen to this in Psalm 16, 8 and 9. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body dwells secure. Happiness. It's found in the right relationship with God. My heart rejoices. My heart is glad. 
Happiness can't be bought with a price. It's a byproduct of being in a relationship with God. What about peace? Everybody wants peace. The world craves for peace. I'm not talking about world peace. I'm talking about inner peace, the peace of mind, the kind of peace that enables us to live with ourselves and others. How do you experience that kind of peace? Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you have peace? You have peace with God justified by faith. It's one of life's most precious commodities. Money cannot buy it. It comes to a person through a right relationship with God. And so the message of this parable is one we need to be constantly reminded of in our crass materialistic age. It's a good thing to, to have money and a few things that money can buy, but it's also a good idea to check every once in a while and make sure you haven't lost the things that money cannot buy, like salvation and happiness and peace. Because Jesus says life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Because there's more to life than possessions. There's, secondly, there's also more to life than the personal. There's more to life than just you. Friends, I hate to tell you, but it's not about you. Life is not all about you. And this rich farmer exemplifies selfishness so well that characterizes so much of our world. When he discovered he had an overflow crop, what does he do? What can I do with all this extra crop that I have? What, where in the world can I store it? Well, here's a novel idea. How about in the stomachs of some of your hungry neighbors? No, that never occurs to him. He's going to hoard it. Tear down his barns, which are already full, so that he can build up bigger ones and hoard some more. His first and only thoughts were about himself. And so he builds bigger barns. How is he going to enjoy the fruit of his labor? That's the question. So he sat back and enjoyed his wine, women, and song because his entire world revolved around himself. Exhibit A is, and I noticed this recently, how many first-person pronouns, first-person pronouns are used in verses 17 through 19. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store all my grain and my goods. There's 10 right there. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. At least 15. In three short verses, he focuses on himself. His world revolves around himself. And when he faces God on judgment day, what does God call him? He calls him a fool because he loved money more than the essentials in life, but also because he had so much and was only concerned with getting more. He coveted. And when you get right down to it, covetousness looks pretty silly from heaven's window. Greed. The definition of greed is the more you have, 
the more you need. I heard a man's prayer recently written. It said, Lord, bless me and my wife, son John and his wife, we four and no more. Amen. And that's the way a lot of our prayers sound to God. Selfish, greedy. Where else could this farmer who has been blessed abundantly by God could have stored his abundant crops? The mouths of hungry people. That's a good idea. In our selfish, self-centered world, we need to hear the message of this parable that there's more to life than ourselves. And Jesus is not saying that we should not work hard and develop our potential. He's not recommending some kind of self-denial that says, I'm nobody, I can't do anything. But we need to walk a line between respecting ourselves and, and caring and providing for our family and our future without crossing over that line into selfishness and greed and hoarding. When we can do that, that's when we will have learned there's more to life than just ourselves. It's not about the personal. It's not about possessions. It's not about the personal. And finally, it's not about the present. There's more to life than just living for today. There's more to life than today. And let's say if God blesses us and we live 80, 90, or like a few, even over 100 years, we need to keep our earthly life in perspective because those of you who know a little bit of math, what is 90 or 100 years compared to eternity? What is 100 compared to infinity? It's a drop in the bucket. It's not even a drop. It's not even a point on a line that goes on forever. This rich farmer is foolish. Not simply because he neglected the most important things in life and not simply because he thought only about himself. It's because he thought this experience of living filled with wine, women, and song was all that would ever be. When he woke up one morning to find another dimension of life that he had completely ignored the internal dimension, he wasn't prepared for it. Rick Warren says over and over again in The Purpose Driven Life, the purpose of your life here on earth is to prepare for eternity. And if God has left you here another day, it's because he's being gracious and merciful to you to give you one more opportunity to finally get it right. And if you only live this life for the present and neglect preparation for eternity, you will have failed in the most important test you'll ever be given. William Willimon is a Methodist minister. He's pastored some Methodist churches. Most recently, I noticed he was dean of the chapel at Duke University. And he had an experience in his rural church while he was in seminary. One of his members of that little church, a little white frame rural church, had a relative who died. And, and Willimon and his wife went to attend the funeral to support the family of, as a member of his church. The funeral was a, in a little hot, crowded, kind of an off-brand country church. And as the service began, the coffins wheeled in, and the preacher began winding up his message. 
And the preacher shouted and he fumed and he waved his arms and he wiped his brow and he shouted, it's too late for Joe. Screaming, pointing at the pulpit. He might have wanted to do this or that with life, but it's too late for him now. He's dead. It's all over for him. He might have wanted to straighten his life out, but it's too late now. It's all over. It's too late for Joe. And then he turned to the family and said, but it ain't too late for you. People drop dead every day. So why wait? Now was the time to make a decision. Now was the time to make your life count for something. Now was the time to give your life to Jesus. Well, after the funeral, Willimon and his wife are driving home. And Willimon commented, he said, that has got to be the worst excuse for a funeral sermon I've ever heard. Can you imagine a preacher doing that kind of cheap, manipulative thing to a, a grieving family? What kind of comfort was that for them? I would never preach anything like that at a funeral. What in the world was he thinking? And his wife agreed that it was cheap and manipulative. But she went on to add, you know, the worst part about it all is that everything that preacher said, everything is absolutely true. Remember the setting. A younger brother wants his inheritance. He doesn't think his older brother is treating him right. And Jesus tells him in a parable, this life is more about giving than it is about getting. He's not saying we shouldn't save, we shouldn't be wise. But he just wants us to be sure that while we're saving here on earth, we're also saving more in heaven. And he's drawing our attention to this reality that everybody is going to die one day. And when we die, we will walk out of the darkness of this world and into the light of God's presence. And when we walk into the light of God's presence, there's going to be an accounting. And we will be reminded there's life, more to life than our possessions, more to life than the personal, more to life than the present. And I hope that when that day comes for each of us, as it surely will, should Jesus tarry, I hope it'll be no surprise and that we'll not be ashamed and that God won't look at us and call us foolish because the time to prepare for eternity is right now. Let's bow together. Jesus, your words are hard and they are radical and so we tend to water them down and rationalize and make excuses and are tempted to believe that what we own belongs to us and we can do with as we please. But you have reminded us so plainly time and again that nothing is ours that it is all yours. And you have shared it with us for a few short years here on earth just to test us and to see how much we love you and trust you and place our faith in you and not in things. So help us be good, wise stewards 
providing for our families and a little bit for the future and sharing the rest as you have so richly shared with us when we were so undeserving. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.